and we see that, and we, boy, I'm trying my best to be a good person, and bad things just happen to me, and it's frustrating, and that's true. Good things sometimes happen to bad people, and we think, boy, I mean, God's not just. God, God doesn't get it. I'm working my best to be faithful, and yet sinful people are thriving. But we learn from the minor prophets that, yes, God is a just God, and we can be thankful for that. It is not always in our time that we see that justice in the right way, but God is a just, holy God, and we're thankful for that. Also in the Minor Prophets, we see that the, the prophets constantly point to the coming Messiah. Uh, even as we talked about this morning, Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon is drawing that conclusion for them. The Messiah has come. And so the Minor Prophets are books that are important because they point those things out about God, and they're always pointing towards the coming Messiah. The, if you have your outline in front of you, the first thing we would notice about Joel is he's sometimes called the prophet of Pentecost. The prophet of Pentecost. He's also sometimes, if you've already opened your Bible there to the book, he's also sometime called, sometimes called the prophet of the locust plague. Because that is what chapter 1 talks about. It references this locust plague. But he's often called the prophet of Pentecost because of the prophecy that he gave and the fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But as we said this morning, not just on that day, but in those last days, the last days in which we are still living because Jesus has not returned. We don't know a lot about Joel. In fact, if you've opened there, you see in chapter 1, in verse number 1, that he is the son of Pethul, and that's about it. We don't know much else. Very short book. Doesn't focus on him very much. It is thought to be that he was from the southern kingdom of Judah. Thought to be from the southern kingdom of Judah. Because he talks a lot about the priesthood. He kind of shows an affinity for Jerusalem. But that's only because of his words. And if you remember the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We know a little bit about them and their differences. And just the way he, the words he uses. That's the only, again, not for sure, but kind of infer inference we can draw from that but otherwise we don't know much in fact one thing we do know if you have your outline there is that the name Joel is used 14 times in the Old Testament the name is used 14 times in the Old Testament and that is not from just him that is from other people that might bear that name as well so we always talk about context and we always talk about knowing the passage you're looking at but let me encourage you just because you see the name Joel somewhere in the Old Testament, it may not be the prophet Joel who penned this particular book. And so we need to pay attention, but the name is used several times when it comes to the Old Testament. The name also means uh, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is God is what the name Joel means. And again, we just don't find out much uh, about him. Um, Again, it, it, probably about 12 men, I think is one count I read. 12 different people maybe named Joel in the Old Testament. So we need to be careful as we think about that. Uh, when we think about the book, if I could give you a very brief outline. I didn't have this in your notes, but you can maybe write it out to the side or some of you write in your own notebooks. But a very brief outline. Three chapters and three points. Number one, the first chapter deals with the locust plague. The locust plague. And as you look through there, beginning really in about verse number 4, you see what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten, and what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. And you may have a different words or descriptions used there with different versions. Mine's the New King James, of course, 
that I usually have here in front of me. But this is a locust plague, <coughs> excuse me, that was a judgment from God. It was a judgment from God upon the people. It brought destruction on Judah. Now, as is sometimes the case with these books in the Old Testament, there is a question by some people if this is a figurative locust plague or a literal locust plague. And, you know, many people would say that it was real. It was a real plague that came and brought destruction upon the land. Uh, there is a reference in Amos to a locust plague. Amos was around 50 to 60 years around the prophet Joel. They were, you know, somewhat kind of close together there. And so it's possible that that is a reference to the locust plague that takes place here. And so uh, many believe that it was a literal locust plague that brought destruction upon Judah. So that's the first chapter. Uh, the second chapter is that Judah is called to return to God. Judah is called to return to God. If the first chapter deals with the plague, it deals with the foreshadowing judgment, it also highlights the need for their restoration. You are wrong. You're wrong in the sight of God. Number two, second chapter, Judah is called to return to God. And of course, God promises blessings. Maybe you can add that to your notes if you take them. But God promises blessings if they will return. Once again, people sometimes will emphasize God's justice and blame him as being evil and terrible and destroying people and causing destruction. He does as a means of judgment, but he also promises blessings to those who are faithful to him. And throughout these prophets, he's calling them to return to God, and he promises blessings if they only will return. But quite often they don't want to. The third chapter then is that God calls all nations to judgment. God is the judge of all nations, Edom, Egypt, Philistia, Israel, all of these nations, God is the judge, and he will judge all nations. If you turn over to chapter 3, if you have your Bible open there, you'll see some of those names, Tyre and Sidon in, in verse number 4, uh, you'll see lists of some of these places. God is truly the judge of all nations, including the enemies of the Israelites. And so he's calling all nations to judgment. He's going to execute judgment. And that is an important thought when it comes to the book of Joel. The locust plague, the call to return to God, and that God calls all nations then to judgment. All right, a few other things about the book. A key phrase, if you have your outline there, is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. You'll see this used many times. I think five is the main number. If you're making notes, you can jot some of these down or turn to them and follow along. Chapter 1 and verse 15. 1, 15, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Chapter 2, verse 1, the day of the Lord is coming. Chapter 2, verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Chapter 2 and verse 31, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord and then chapter 3 and verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So the children of Israel had to, needed to understand this day of the Lord, this sense of judgment that was going to be coming. They needed to change their ways. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this in our class this morning, but it's, it's difficult sometimes. We have very 
uh, Americanized glasses that we wear sometimes that make us think the, the United States, which has been a blessed country, the United States, which has been somewhat of a Christian, God-fearing country for a time, is maybe considers or carries favored status with God like the children of Israel had. And that's not the case. We're thankful to have the blessings we have. But even through the country that we live in, the way that some of values might have shifted, we need to always be preaching the day of the Lord, the judgment to come, and that is certainly a very important message. A key chapter, you probably already noticed that from our lesson this morning, but chapter 2 is the key chapter. I don't know if you're aware of this, many of you are, but you might jot down to the side. There are other three, cha- three books that have chapter 2s that kind of go along. The others in the Old Testament are Isaiah 2 and Daniel 2. Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, and so often as preachers, it's a great memory device, but if you put Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, and Joel 2 together, and then you tie with them Acts chapter 2, you have a wonderful picture of the prophecy of the church that would be coming, this kingdom that even when we talked about Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 is the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, you may remember we put it up on the screen for just a moment if you were here, but that statue that talks about this coming kingdom that would stand And so Isaiah 2, Joel 2, Daniel 2 all point towards Acts chapter 2. And that is very, very encouraging when we think about uh, God's word, God's promises, and the prophecy that is there. We can take comfort in that. The date. Sometimes the date is really important. Other times maybe there's some, you know, uh, misunderstanding or there's some difference in what people think. If you want to put a date down there, if you have your outline, 830 B.C. is the time that a lot of people agree upon as being the uh, main date. Here's the issue with Joel. It's uncertain of the date, but there's some things that that are mentioned in the book that kind of point towards either what we would call an early late, early date, or a late date. Early or late date. And here are the things. Number one, there was no king ruling in Israel. There's no mention in the book of Joel of a king being mentioned. So there are a few things that kind of we need to decide to date it. One is that there's no king ruling. Number two, we see that the temple was standing. And if you're open to Joel chapter 2 there, and you see in verse number 9, we see that the temple was standing. Number three, in verse number 9, we see that the walls were standing. We see that the walls were standing. And the other interesting thing, the fourth thing, is that there's no mention or no hint of idolatry. Now, if you've been paying attention through all of these prophets in the Old Testament, their problem with the children of Israel was idolatry. You remember, I mean, all through the books of the kings and all through this time, their problem was leaving God to worship idols. So there's no king ruling. The temple was standing. The walls were standing, and there's no hint of idolatry. If all four of those things have to take place, it's either going to be an early date or a late date for the book because what happens in around 584 to 586? The temple is destroyed, right? Jerusalem is destroyed, and so there is no temple, and there is no wall, and so that that kind of then separates us into early or late. And a lot of people believe that around 830 B.C., the 9th century B.C., is when this is talking about, which would have been before the temple was destroyed. If you remember your history, you know that it was rebuilt in 444. When we think about Ezra and Nehemiah, our young people were fixing to drill 
that into their heads for last leaders next year. Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the wall. So when Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, when they were around there, 444, it's either that or it's 830. Because those things that we talked about, those four things we just mentioned, the wall standing, it's either once it was rebuilt or before it was destroyed. And I know that's kind of some historical stuff that may not uh, matter a whole lot kind of when you think about it. But it's just interesting as we think about how books are dated sometimes, why that matters. Well, it does. We can't just pick something. And if Joel doesn't give us any specific kind of indication other than those, well, we've got to kind of try to figure out about the time it would have been written in 830 B.C., is one of those that uh, seems most likely. All right, one more thing here before we go to some lessons. The purpose. The purpose of the book is to get the people to repent. Get the people to repent. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is also some, one of the favorite passages of a lot of people from Joel. Joel 2, 12 and 13. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting with weeping and with mourning. And here's the key phrase. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. You see, there is a lot of encouragement here that we read about even in the New Testament. What does Jesus begin with, basically, when you turn over to the New Testament, to Matthew, and the first major speech or sermon that you read is what the sermon on the mount right what is the main point of jesus through a lot of that but forget the law forget the actual hard keeping of the law but now it's about your heart how many times does jesus say there and we studied the the sermon on the mount not too long ago you have heard it said but now i say to you you have heard it said don't commit adultery but now i say to you whoever looks upon a woman to lust has committed adultery in his heart Right, that the uh, the act is still awful, and, and no one should participate in that, and they shouldn't have then. But now I'm saying to you, it's about your heart, and so we see this here that the people needed to repent. And in chapter two, verse fourteen, rend your heart and not your garments. Do you know anybody? And maybe sometimes we're guilty. Do you know anybody who's real great at putting on a show? at tearing their garments, so to speak, and weeping and sounding like they're really awful, and I'm so sorry, but they never once changed their heart or their attitude about whatever it might be. Maybe we've all been there in just a, a little kind of way. You know, we got caught doing something maybe we don't really intend to change, but we certainly cry in front of our parents or weep and say, oh, I'm so sorry it won't happen again. We never really change our heart. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. The purpose of the book was to get the people to repent to realize they needed to change their hearts. All right, a couple of lessons here, and then the lesson, this lesson will be yours. Number one is that disasters can turn man to God. Disasters can turn or help man turn toward God. And what we're talking about is Joel chapter 1, this locust plague. God caused this disaster. I'm not standing before you this afternoon to say that God causes every awful thing to happen in that sense. He did, here in chapter 1, send the locust plague as a judgment on the people. Sometimes accidents and tragedies happen because of our kind of decisions. Of course, one of the easiest ones sometimes to point out is the idea of drunk driving. Someone who drives drunk, they've made the choice to do that. They hit a family with young children and kill the whole family. That family didn't do anything. God didn't necessarily cause that to happen, but it's someone's 
poor choice. But at the same time, disasters can help men turn toward God. Once again, I hate to ask, and don't ask for a show of hands or anything, certainly, but have you ever been in that boat? That it took, as we say, hitting rock bottom in order to turn back to God. Sometimes God has to get the attention of people, and in the Old Testament specifically, here he was trying to do so with the locust plague. And sometimes that is what we need. We need something to sort of motivate us. And yes, no one is wanting to bring upon disaster and tragedy, lose loved ones, sickness, and that kind of thing. But it can be used. Maybe you have known someone, and once again, maybe even you were someone who said, you know, I've seen this tragedy and it motivates me to be better and I'm going to be stronger and I'm going to serve God. So yes, absolutely, disasters can turn man toward God. The second thing that you have in your outline there is that God requires outward worship but also devoted hearts. God requires not only the outward form of worship, we might say, but also devoted hearts. Can I encourage you, if you've not been with us, or if you'll think back to the last couple of Wednesday nights, that has been part of our theme as we've talked about our singing and the way we worship. God does desire the outward physical form of worship in a sense. He wants us to come together here because this is the designated place for the Saudi church. He wants us to use our voices to sing. He wants us to be involved, a participant in the worship, but that's not it. God requires not only outward worship, outward forms of worship, but also devoted hearts. Of course, the reference from Joel is Joel 2.13, where we were just a few moments ago, verses 12 and 13. Rend your heart and not your garments. Turn back to God and don't just put on an outward show, but do what's right inwardly as well. We think about that with Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. I think we referenced this actually Wednesday night in our class, Matthew 15, 8 and 9, but where Jesus is talking about the idea of people drawing near to him with their mouth, honoring me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Why would God say, we, went, we did reference Wednesday night, Isaiah chapter 1, God is not respecting their worship? Wait a minute, how can that be the case? Because he knows that they're only using showing up for worship as a cover-up for everything else that they want to live on their own outside of that. It's the outward worship, but it's also the devoted hearts. That's why we talk about Ephesians 5.19 as we have, singing with our hearts, it being a part of who we are, and we do it with all that we have, even as we talked about worship here recently on Sunday morning. God requires outward worship, but also devoted hearts. Let me add one more that's not in your notes there, uh, but maybe one of the biggest lessons of course, from Joel, is that God's plan for the church has always been in his mind. God's plan for the church, God's plan for redemption has always been in his mind. And we think about Acts 2 and Joel 2 together. And so we must love the church. If I can ask you to turn to one New Testament passage, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. If the church is this important to God, then we need to love it. Peter would say, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. We have had a time recently where people try to make a distinction between the church and service to God 
or the church and worship or kind of drawing these lines during this time when we have had to uh, sort of had to kind of again go back and forth for a short period of time with our worship and our Bible classes and things. So people say, well, I don't need the church. I don't need worship. God had a plan for the church from, in his mind for all time. And we can be thankful for that and we should respect that and want to be a part of that and love the church. How amazing is it to think about how he designed it to work. All the New Testament passages that encourage us to be a part and to play our part in the church. That we all have a role to play. We all encourage one another. We emphasize the roles of service that are public, such as the public leading of worship, the preacher or the song leaders or those people. We try to emphasize our teachers and how important they are, but there's still a bit of a public fashion of that. But as we have seen through funerals and serving at funerals and serving food for families and, and all the other things that it takes to make a congregation work for us to be able to encourage one another, it takes all of us doing our part, whatever part that might be, because it takes everybody. It takes those who are good cooks to help fix the food. It takes those who help serve to put things on. It takes those who have knowledge in various ways for the church to work together. And I am amazed constantly. I'm amazed constantly at how it works when, it, when we follow God's plan. It works beautifully. It makes us feel good. It encourages us to think that God knew what he was doing and he had a plan. When Jesus left this earth, it was awful. It was awful for those who were following along behind him. But pretty soon, as we see and saw this morning in Acts chapter 2, the church is established and the people begin working together. Yes, Jesus is gone, and we sometimes say today, well, what if, Jesus would just, what if Jesus would just show up today, and, you know, everybody would believe, everybody would understand. He doesn't. He's not coming back until he comes back again in final judgment, but what he left is his church. We sometimes say to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to share the gospel, to be the light. The church is wonderful. God had it in his mind, and we need to love the church. If I can encourage you with one final lesson here as we draw this lesson to a close. In chapter 2 and in chapter 3 with the valley of decision that we read about a few moments ago, one final lesson would be that we must make a decision about God. We must make a decision about God. And that's how we end each lesson. What decision would you make about God? Would you be faithful to him and serve him? Or would you continue to serve yourself? or to serve idols, whatever nature they may be, or to serve the flesh. We're thankful for the opportunity to be here together, to study a good book such as this, and to see that in a way, in a way, we are in the same boat as the children of Israel. We're living under a new, new covenant, but at the same time, we still have a choice to make about serving God. As we're about to sing this song of encouragement this afternoon, if you're here, you're not a child of God, make a decision about serving God in the positive light. Become committed. Be baptized for the remission of your sins so that you can begin to live faithfully, be added to the church, and know that peace, that hope that comes with being a child of God. Maybe you're here and you've done that in times past, but you've wandered away, you've struggled with sin, and, and sometimes it happens easily, right? Those idols sneak up on us, serving the flesh. We don't even, we get so caught up in the world and in our children or our families and things that we forget about serving God. Make a decision, even as Joel encouraged the children of Israel to do, to serve him. If you're here and you're a child of God already, but you need to come back, we're thankful for that opportunity that presents itself now as well to 
Repent of your sins. Maybe confess them before an audience such as this to pray for forgiveness so that you can again walk in the light as he is in the light. Rinse your heart, not just your garments. Serve him, even now as we stand together and as we sing.